If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad. The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Terry Weinberg, and I am the executive producer of The Office. Hello, everyone. And uh, welcome to, oh, you guessed it, The Office Deep Dive. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner, but I bet you guessed that too, because you are all very smart, as is uh, my wonderful guest today, Terry Weinberg. That was a transition. Now, Terry was an executive producer of The Office and a longtime partner of Ben Silverman, which truly makes her a saint. Let's be honest. <laughs> uh, but she was definitely there from the very beginning in the room where it happened, as they say. The room where they grew the office from a tiny seed of an idea into the crazy popular show that it is today. Um, as you will hear all about momentarily, Terry was involved from day one in the casting and in really the creation of the show. But what's even more fascinating to me 
is that in the later years of the show, Terry jumped over to work on the network side at NBC. So she saw things from the inside and then also from the network side and how the network was dealing with the show. She has a really unique perspective on the whole story of The Office. And this conversation kicks off another miniseries that we're doing, highlighting just some of the many talented, hilarious, uh, super smart women who made The Office what it is, both in front of the camera and behind the scenes. This is a great bunch of interviews, if I do say so myself. So I am, I'm really excited to share them all with you. So let's get started, shall we? Today with Terry Weinberg. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning Left over from the night before You know, a lot of the cast, I will say, like, we do really still, you know, keep in touch. Yeah. Like, um, our fantasy football league is still going like 15 years later. So John and rain and me and some of the crew guys and, um, well, good luck with that this year. Exactly. But you know, Oscar and Angela and I, and you know, rain and I, and John. And that's part of the thing too, about this COVID business is that people are reaching out more. You know, my birthday was on uh, Monday and I spent the entire day on zooms. I mean the entire day. You know, but people, you, you're you learning two things. One, we're working harder to stay connected with people. And then you're also learning who wants to stay connected to you, you know? Yeah. Father's Day. I heard from people like, Father's Day? Like, what? Nobody ever reaches out. Why are you? Right. I'm not your father. <laughs> people reach out. But like, everyone's reaching out. I don't know. That's been really great. Okay. So you were so omnipresent through all of the beginning. So if you go all the way back now, it's 19 years ago. Yeah. How did you meet Ben? When did you start working for Reveille? What was the transition there? Uh, I met Ben in 2000. I had two roommates at the time. One of my roommates who Ben had known for some time, who I think date he dated for one second, right. introduced him to our other roommate. Now, Ben was still working at uh, William Morris. I think he was still in London and he would fly out to LA and he would be out here every month and he would stay for, you know, a couple weeks, whatever. So she introduced one roommate introduces him to the other. They start dating uh, in true Ben fashion. <laughs> he used to stay at the Lermitage. I think it was okay. for three weeks at a time. Either she would stay at the Lermitage with him or he would stay in our duplex. And so I started to see him a lot and got to know him just socially. And at that point, my roommate that he was dating and me, I just left ICM and I, we started a skincare company. Okay. So I would be up all day, all night, making all these skincare products in my kitchen. And I was talking to Ben about, you know, what my experience was at ICM and whatever. We just got to know each other really well. And it was in March, I think of 2001, he pulled an all-nighter, I think, at the Oscars, came home. I'm up 
at four or five in the morning making these things. He comes walking in in his Oswald Botang purple suit. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we just started talking. He said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to start my own production company. I've been bringing formats in to the States and I really just want to have more of a creative experience. I want to be a producer. And when I do that, I want you to come work for me. And I said, okay, what, I have no idea what you're talking about, but okay, Ben, talk to me next year because I didn't take him seriously, but he kept bringing it up. And he always said to me, you know, I really appreciate your work ethic. I like the experience that you have. I have no idea what you'd be doing yet, but I know that I need you to be a part of my company. So cut to that next year where uh, he made the deal with Vivendi Universal. It was Barry Diller at the time. And um, he brought Howard Owens, Mark Coops, and Chris Grant from New York. They were all still in New York. And he said, I'm bringing these three guys. Didn't know them. We have a bungalow at Universal. So I want you to go and set up the office. And I need a house. Go find me a house. (laughs) This is no surprise. Yes, no, not at all. Yeah. And we will be there in two months or something like that. So what do I do? I go on the lot. I get the whole entire bungalow up, ready to go. All they had to do was walk in and pick up a pen and go to work. Phones, everything. I navigated my way through the entire universal, every department you could possibly imagine. Anyway, they come out and we all just learned how to produce. Just the five of us. You would have thought that a hundred people worked at that production company and it was us five. And so Ben, Mark, and Howard, you know, were focusing mostly on international. You know, we had Nashville Star, I think, was being developed and Biggest Loser, just kind of, you know, looking at formats and kind of touching on what that stuff was going to be, which I really didn't have any interest in. And um, we had the format to coupling. That was our first uh, show that we started to produce in, in scripted television. And so I just kind of cut my teeth in that process. I would just sit in the corner, you know, in a room and listen to, you know, the conversations. I went to every, I did everything with Ben. I went everywhere. I was on every phone call, you, everything that you could possibly imagine. That's really how I learned is listening to executives, listening to studios, listening to creative people. I certainly had a deep familiarity with script because that's how I was raised at ICM. And then I just, each day, I just kept immersing myself deeper and deeper in that process. And that's really how I built the scripted department at Reveille. What did you learn from your experience on coupling that you felt like impacted bringing the office over? We learned a couple of things. One, you know, there was so much pressure on that show because it was being coined the next friends. And we realized that, oh shit, that's a big problem. Because people are going to have an expectation that we are trying to be the next friends, which we had no intention of being. So learning about how critical marketing is of a show. And also, we pretty much adhered to every script from the British version instead of kind of making it our own. And so we also learned that that stuff doesn't necessarily translate. So I think we learned that going into that process, we needed to have a voice. We needed to have somebody come in that, you know, understood the rhythms and the uniqueness of what that show was, but had to bring in their own voice and make it their own. 
Right. Steven actually said to me that he felt like his greatest contribution was actually, and one thing he said to Ricky was step back. Like they know culturally about what's happening in America or rhythms or specific sensibilities or whatever. So the more we can stay out of it, the better. I mean, the most beautiful thing about what Ricky and Steven did was exactly that. They came over, met the cast, spent time with Greg, and just talked about the things that we really cared about. How did you create these characters? What made you want to be in this world? How did these rhythms, like all of the things that were more important instead of tell us exactly how you, you know, get this shot or whatever. It was really more about all the impetuses on creating the show. And then they were the most incredible cheerleaders one could ever have. I mean, they were absolutely dream partners and they literally just sat back and like fans fell in love with, with the show. And I'll never forget. And I'm sure you'll remember. I mean, I was, it was kind of a blur, but when we won the Emmy and we were all up on the stage and Greg reached out and said, Ricky and Steven, I know you're out there somewhere, you know, because of you, you're brilliant. I, I can't remember exactly what he said. And then I remembered watching the telecast back and Ricky and Steven, they were so proud, but got so shy and didn't want to take any of the credit for it. It was beautiful. And they never had egos about it to say, this is our thing and we're lending it to you. This is our thing. And we're giving this to you and we're trusting you to go and do your own thing. Yeah. So at what point in the process when you were working with Reveille, did you become aware of the office, the British office? I mean, it had to be in the beginning because Ben had the rights. Yeah. He had already secured them. And I remembered Ben showing it to me and said, look at this and tell me what you think. And I remembered watching it and said, oh my God, I, I have to, we have to do this. I don't know what the fuck we're doing, but we have to do this. <laughs> right, right. I was absolutely obsessed. So it was very early on. And then, then we put the time into, you know, try to find the right voice. And in the conversations that Ben had had with Ari, Greg's name obviously came up and I'm sure he probably told you this, but he just would not watch it. I mean, I think he sat on it for three weeks or something like that. And then finally Ben was talking to Ari and said, is this guy going to ever, you know, watch this? And I think Ari said the same thing to Greg are you going to fucking watch this? You know, because they're going to move on. And then Greg, I think watched it over that weekend and came back and said, Oh my God, I hope to God they didn't move on because I have to do this. Yeah. That's awesome. What was your initial impression of him? Introvert, brilliant. One of the nicest people I'd ever met. Collaborative, open, you know, and welcome. Didn't bring any ego respected us and me even i don't know if he knew how much i'd ever you know produced in my life and immediately just treated us like his partners i fell in love with him immediately and thought my god how did we get so lucky this man is just brilliant you know greg he's thoughtful he's tactile in his hands like he thinks before he you know there's a lot ruminating in here before he would share an idea, but he was incredibly thoughtful and very, very respectful of the format 
and of Ricky and Steven and cautious because we all knew we were stepping in a gigantic pile of, are you guys kidding me that you're actually going to attempt to do this? So yeah, I just, I only have the most and still the fondest memories of Greg. Was there anybody else that you feel like you seriously considered or was Greg it? Greg was it. Ricky and Steven told me both separately that what sold them was that Greg saw it as a love story. Yeah, it was a, it was a love story. It was about humanity. It was about human behavior. It was all about people. It was all about heart. The thing that we can all relate to is that in some form or fashion, we've been in a workplace where you're not necessarily happy about the work that you're doing, but you fall in love with the people. It's love and hate relationship. They become family. They become, you know, you see them more typically in your life than you do your family members. And so it really was about the love that's created, you know, in a workplace for sure. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Not only did Zen create the first ever nicotine pouch, we're still America's number one choice for smoke-free, spit-free nicotine satisfaction. It could be because Zen is made with only six simple ingredients, including naturally derived nicotine salt. Or maybe it's because Zinn is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day trial. For anyone worried Zinn won't cut it like traditional tobacco, just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zinn. Find your Zinn online or in a store near you at zinn.com find. That's zyn.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. 
because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You were in the room for the majority, if not all, of the casting sessions. Was there anyone who walked in right away that was ultimately cast that you went, that's the person? John, Steve. But Steve's a different story. He didn't really audition. Um, You know, it was a really interesting audition process because I don't think any one of us had ever really kind of been through anything like that before because actors would come in and read a scene and then they would improv, you know, and Greg would throw ridiculous little lines out and say, go tell me you just got into your refrigerator this morning, you know, or just these really kind of weird random things. And we saw so many actors, you know, Greg, myself, Ken, Howard, Ben, you know, Allison and, and um, Phyllis would be in the conference room at Reveille for eight or 10 hours a day, just, and it was just a constant. And Allison, she had such a deep knowledge of, you know, stand-ups and second cities and groundlings and people that we'd never seen before. And so there were so many people that were so interesting to us. And I think as we whittled things down and it became all of you, we knew it was all of you because everybody didn't fit a mold that we were looking for but they brought something special and beautiful. It was like making a puzzle. Everybody just fit in so beautifully. For, you know, Jim and Pam and Dwight, et cetera, talk to me a little bit about doing screen tests, filming them in the office as opposed to doing regular studio and network tests. How rare was that at that time? Uh, We were the first, if I remember correctly. And the reason was very, it was selfish on our part because A, we thought they will never make this show if two actors, you know, because at that time, actors used to walk into the president's office and there would be 20 people behind the president and two people would be asked to perform a scene or something with all these eyeballs on them. And it was the most unnatural process anybody could ever imagine. 
And then I remember when I went to NBC and became a programmer and we were asking people to do that. I said, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I want to put people on tape because it doesn't, you don't get the real person because they're so busy performing for a room. And so, so yeah, I think we were the first of its kind. And I think because of that, it started to kind of shift the way people were auditioning. Do you remember Phyllis? Of course. No, I mean reading and that and the, yeah, of course. Anything about the discussion around casting her? Yes, I mean, uh, part of the process was either she would run the camera or Allison would run the camera, and then if Allison didn't feel like reading, Phyllis would read, and then Phyllis started reading more and more. And I don't remember if it was Ken that said it first or Greg, but said, "Oh my God, we ha- she has to be in the show." She's so funny. And we all said, oh my God, yes. And I remembered us asking Allison, how do you feel about if we steal Phyllis? And she said, oh my God, you know, yes, you know, take her. And I remember us telling her and it was, it was pretty amazing. What do you remember? So thinking about The Office and what that show was, the style, the no laugh track, all that. What was the landscape of television? that that show was born into? Like what was popular or what was done on broadcast TV at that time? Seinfeld, Cheers, all of the seminal comedies that were so smart. But the thing about that time, as I remember, is that ratings were everything. 18 to 34 was everything. You had to have, you know, a 20 share or something. So having, you know, 5 million people or 6 million people watching your show is just a non-starter. You know, it had to be 20 million. And our audience was very, very concentrated in the 18 to 34. And it was very 100K plus, but it was small. And so that's the challenge was how do we keep ourselves on the air when A, the pilot tested worse than I think any other pilot had ever tested on NBC besides, I think, Seinfeld didn't test well either. And, uh, you know, we only had six episodes to prove ourselves. And we were kind of at that time also scheduled in kind of the, okay, you're dead. It was in March. And that's when people said, well, why are shows starting to air after the, you know, prime time uh, fall and mid-season shows? And so we kind of felt like they were just getting rid of us. Right. So the pilot bombed when it was tested. Were you concerned about that? Yes, because it was, you know, at that time, if something tests really bad, it's DOA, you know, and if it's not DOA, good luck trying to convince your network that it's a pilot that they should bet on. And so if not for Kevin Riley, this show would not have a life. I really do believe that he put his career on the line. So yeah, we were very concerned. And I think part of the reason why it tested so poorly is just because it was something that people had never seen before. And those groups that come in to do the testing, you know, they get paid $75 or $50 or whatever. And then they judge your material based on 20 minutes of something and tell you if it's good or it's bad. That was a real learning experience for me and something that I thought, God, if I could, and I think when Ben and I went to NBC, we didn't care so much about testing. We cared more about instinct 
We cared about the shows that we loved and wanted to program. So I think that came into a full circle as we went from producer to, to a programmer that testing serves a certain purpose, but it shouldn't be the be all end all of the success of something. Right. Well, speaking of that, how did your relationship to the office change when you moved to NBC? The only thing that changed was that I could be an even larger advocate for it inside the network. Not that I needed to be because at that point, you know, we were, we were just a well-oiled machine. You know, it was interesting because then I became Greg's executive and to switch from being partner and fighting for certain things over here and now being, you know, a head programmer having to fight for certain things that I knew were in the best interest of the network without interfering with the integrity of the show. And here's a perfect example. We wanted The Office to, to air after the Super Bowl. And um, we needed to make sure that if whoever was watching the Super Bowl had never seen The Office before, that we had to do something completely outrageous to let people say, oh my God, I have never seen this show. I love this, I'm staying. And Greg had pitched a cold open and I remembered saying, you know, this is kind of cool, but I'm getting a little pressure from Jeff, you know, and Ben to make sure that we have some celebrities in there. And, you know, we never had celebrities on our show. It was always about, you know, making sure that it felt like we were dropping into a world of just human beings. And in Greg's brilliant fashion, found a way to bring in celebrities without having the celebrities feel like they were really a part of the office. And I challenged him to do the most outrageous cold open that he could, you know, if people were only going to see the first minute and a half of the show. So it was having to, you know, maneuver a little bit differently as becoming a kind of network person, as opposed to his partner on the show. That's fascinating. Yeah, I never put it within that context that at that moment, the people that he was having to do this push and pull for that episode was you guys. I was the person that would call the network for Greg or the studio and say, he's not doing that. Or we're not changing this. Or, you know, because he did not like those confrontational moments. And I always said, you want confrontation? Just bring it over to mama and I'll take care of it. Now I'm the person on the other end of the phone getting, you know, well, we want to do this. We need to do that, you know, and, and giving notes, you know, on scripts was crazy, but it wasn't, it was, you know, my instincts didn't change. Right. Because I always knew that he was way smarter than me. And I would, you know, I could only, you know, the one thing that Greg said to me, way back in the beginning when we first started this relationship and he started developing the show was what's most important to me is that you tell me how you feel. How does the episode make you feel? How do the relationships of the characters in this episode make you feel? You know, do you feel moved enough? Do you feel motivated enough? Do you feel? And so I would look at the scripts and just think about how did it make me feel? I didn't look at it and say, well, the structure isn't so much blah, blah, blah. It was about are we accomplishing this really quiet moment between Jim and Pam? Is there something going on with the accountants in the, in the corner that we're peeking in on 
you know, but the rest of the office isn't seeing. So those little things, are you feeling them? Are you picking up on them? It was really about how it made me feel. And I, that's how I continued to produce from that point on. How do characters make me feel? How do the moments make me feel? I love that so much. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Not only did Zen create the first ever nicotine pouch, we're still America's number one choice for smoke-free, spit-free nicotine satisfaction. It could be because Zen is made with only six simple ingredients, including naturally derived nicotine salt. Or maybe it's because Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day trial. For anyone worried Zen won't cut it like traditional tobacco, just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zincom find. That's zyn.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. 
And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, must-see TV became a big thing for NBC. Where do you feel like The Office fit into that legacy of must-see TV comedy on NBC? Oh, well, maybe, you know, this is um, arrogant, but we're integral to the NBC Thursday night lineup. I mean, we are integral to the conversation about what a seminal NBC comedy is. I I absolutely believe that. I believe that we defied all odds of becoming a successful comedy. Who would have ever thought we were going to do 220 episodes? I mean, think about it. We got a five episode pickup and then we got a 13 episode pickup. Really, we didn't get a full season. So not only defying all of those odds, but also kind of redefining what a comedy was, you know, on television. And introducing people into a world that might've felt different, but they also felt like it was so familiar to them and that you could really, you know, cause people come to comedies for two reasons, really to laugh their faces off and to fall in love with a cast, a family, a workplace, you know, buddy comedy, whatever it is. And I think having the extensive cast that we had, I mean, what did we have towards the end of the run? 13 characters, 15 characters. Yeah. Who does that? And every single one of you had people who just loved you. Everybody had their fans. I mean, we got our TV land future comedy classic in season three or four or something. I have it. It's right here. Yeah. So what year is that? Oh my God. There's not a date on it. How is there? Wait, hold on. No, there's a date. It's probably on the other side. Oh, it is. 2008. 2008. So we were a classic already in season... Three to four. Yeah, four. And the fact that we were considered that... And look at it. You know, now, I mean, I have young kids. I went to a kid's bar mitzvah last year. They're all 13, 14. Right. I was accosted. It was like I was a celebrity at this bar mitzvah. Because these kids were obsessed with the show. And we always said we had a hidden demographic from the beginning that was under 18. But now we have, this show has had a life and then another life and another life. And I really do believe that we are, are a part of that conversation. What do you remember about the decision to end the show? Pain. I hated it. It was one of the worst memories that I have of our beautiful love story. It's always hard when you're making decisions about when you move forward on a show and when you don't. From a business standpoint, which I can't respond to because I wasn't on that side of the business at that point, but 
it was really fucking hard. It was hard. All the conversations we had, you know, from, from being an executive producer, sitting with our cast, talking to, you know, the studio, the network. And I, it's kind of a blur now because I, I, I've tried to push it out of my consciousness, but it was, it was excruciatingly painful. And um, I think it hurt a lot of us. I don't know if people really talked about it, but when we shot the last episode, I was so emotionally and physically exhausted. I think I cried for the last month, you know, but when we were all taking that very last shot, I have a book that NBC made for us. I'm sure you've looked at it. And my face is this big and I'm bright red and I am crying. My, and I couldn't believe that it was over. I felt like we had so much more to do mm. and it was over and um, took a long time to, now I have a lot of my own kind of internal things about the show that, you know, I'll, you deal with as a professional. It was excruciatingly hard. Yeah. What are you most proud of about the show? What am I, God, how do I put that in one thing, dude? <laughs> I'm most proud that every single one of us that were involved in the first season of our show, we came to work every day and said, if we're only making six total episodes, let's make the best episodes that we know how to make. And let's come in here and do the work and do it with love and do it with everything that we have and do it for ourselves. You know, and we all showed up on that lot every single day and made, I, I'm getting emotional about this and made an incredibly beautiful show. And it was for all of us, whether you were in the cast, whether you were in the crew, whether you were in accounting, whether you were in props, catering, whatever, everybody came and just, it was like we were on our own Island. I think that we all loved it so much. And everybody came and did their job and did it really well and for each other. I could tell you a million other things, but I think I'm most proud of that being given that opportunity and making our family. Yeah. Did I make you cry? I hope I brought a tear. <laughs> I was trying to not say anything. I wanted to get your audio there. No, it was great. Yeah. yeah. I um everybody that came in. I played them a clip and we don't have that ability here. God damn it. No, but you'll know it. It's the last line of the show. It's Jenna. Uh, it's sorry. It's Pam. Mm -hmm. And there's beauty in ordinary things. Isn't that kind of the point? And I feel like Greg wrote that episode. He wrote that last line. That's what he thought it was about. Mm -hmm. What did you think it was about? I thought it was, I thought it was too. I thought it was, taking something that could have been the most simple and uninteresting idea about a group of people, you know, going to work in a dying business and turning it into something that was so much bigger than that. It was bigger than them. It was bigger than us, all of us. Yeah. It was finding joy and using opportunities to just make people laugh, you know, 
and be able to escape the, you know, maybe the doldrums of their own life and go be with their friends. All of those little beautiful gems that all of you guys were able to create every episode. I mean, we can still probably go back through and I'll see things I never saw before. And I've seen those things a million times. And that was the whole idea. You know, everything was calculated to where Homer Simpson was sitting in the, you know, bullpen, you know, all those, everything was perfectly calculated just to, for fun of people being able to find the little Easter eggs. That's another thing about Greg. He's, he's like a grown child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was juicy. And when he spoke, he did these things with his hands because it was so fun. You know, he always just wanted people to have fun and joy, even if you're an adult, that you could still just be a kid. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Totally. Terry, thank you so much for talking to me. I Are really, so good to see you. You're so smart. I hope you stay healthy. And I just oh, so appreciate you, your time and, and talking to me about this. First of all, I'll talk to you about anything. Okay, good. <laughs> because I love you. And it's such a joy to be able to kind of walk back down certain parts of our super long, you know, memory lane. I'm really excited to hear what everybody else has to say too. I know. I know. It's going to be really cool because I think I get these questions asked all the time. And so it's nice that we be able, we're able to, you know, share it. So I love that you're doing this and, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be a part of it. It's my pleasure. Well, there you have it. Terry Weinberg, folks. Gosh, I truly love talking about the business side of things. But I have to say, it is always so special to talk to a producer who feels so passionately about the creative side of the show as well, as Terry clearly does. So thank you so much for stopping by, Terry. I love you. Um, and thanks to all of you for stopping by as well. I look forward to seeing you next week for more of our series on the women of the office. We've got some terrific stuff coming your way. So until then, I hope you have a great week. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our producers are Emily Carr and Diego Tapia. And our intern is Hannah Harris. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95.
Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.